Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 3.4, Death Ride of the Reichsmarine. This episode on World War I, cut into four parts for your convenience, is about the real coming of age of submarines. In this fourth part, we'll dive into the events of 1918. It will be the year that we'll see two empires collapse, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, of course, the German Empire. It will also see the British start to experiment with using submarines to hunt submarines. And we will see how Germany, in the end, is unable to overcome the Anglo-American onslaught against destroyers, depth charges, and aircraft, and, of course, the convoy system. But it was not for a lack of trying. In this last year of the war, Germany still had some 226 submarines under construction. That was putting submarines to sea almost as fast as it lost them to Anglo-American anti-submarine warfare. As we said in the previous part of this four-part episode, the Americans focused on producing destroyers, sub-hunting aircraft, and transport ships. The Germans were trying to beat the American production Goliath at its own game, but simply lost out. Just like Adolf Hitler in 1942 refused to believe that the U.S. had quadrupled its production of steel in the space of just one year, so the German naval strategists were convinced that it could produce enough submarines to sink a much higher ratio of American ships, which simply proved wrong. Why did the convoy system work so well? Well, first there was the fact that without access to intelligence, like you know, spies in U.S. harbors and long-range radar reconnaissance or radio signal intelligence, U-boats were mostly unaware of where the enemy was. Then there was the fact that the presence of destroyers, subchasers, and aircraft meant that the submarines had to close in while submerged. The convoys were simply faster than submerged submarines, the surface ships going at least 15 knots, while the Germans could only manage 8 knots submerged. So the U-boat's only chance, really, was to lie in ambush, which required intelligence they mostly didn't have, while, as per usual, the U-boat commanders were required to call in at least once a day, giving British and American radio snoopers a fair idea of what to expect where and when, so that they could plot their convoys to avoid them, for instance. Positioning submarines close to ports on the eastern American seaboard was thought to bring some solace. But although Germany had ramped up production, it didn't have enough long-range submarines yet. So it mostly resorted to try and patrol near the British and French ports where the ships would be going, resulting, of course, in the British and the French focusing their anti-submarine warfare efforts on these very same coastal waters. The Allies quickly established a system of coastal convoys in early 1918, resulting in the same problems for U-boats as in deeper waters. Sub-hunting was easier close to the coast, mainly because it allowed short-range, lighter sub-chasers and aircraft to operate, resulting in higher losses for U-boats. Now, I just mentioned coastal convoys. As with just about everything in life, in War II, one learns by doing. For a couple of months, merchant losses went up due to a strategy fluke. Convoys had got close to British waters would break up with the merchants sailing to their target ports and destroyers breaking off to escort ships back to the United States or to regroup. Of course, this was the moment U-boats would strike when the merchants were heading to their ports. This was solved with establishing coastal convoys in which the merchants stuck together and with 
blue water destroyers handing over their duties to lighter coastal subchasers. Situation was a bit different in the Mediterranean, where mostly German submarines were still able to inflict a lot of damage. The main reason for this, naval historians contend, is that the British, French, and Italians simply weren't able to coordinate because of cultural differences, as well as the British and Americans could cooperate in the Atlantic. Of course, the theater of operations was also smaller, with bottlenecks in the west, the narrow Gibraltar Straits, and the Suez Canal in the east. This made life easier for U-boats, as they could patrol these bottlenecks and ambush convoys as they moved in and out of the Med. In an effort to counter the submarine threat, Japan sent a squadron of destroyers to aid their allies, while the Americans went on a production binge of small wooden subchasers, which the Americans also delivered to their British and French allies. The British, meanwhile, had started to take a second look at the submarine weapon. Although it hadn't happened too often a year, there was now a substantial list of sub-on-sub kills. Many of these had been chance engagements, quite literally a submarine servicing, only to discover an enemy submarine off in the distance. This happened to the British submarine D-4, for instance, off the southern coast of Britain near Lyme Bay. From the diary of sailor Reginald Ashley, quote, We were both coming up to recharge our batteries. There was only the skipper and myself and some other three of us or so on the bridge. And all of a sudden I said to the skipper, what's that over there? And he looked and said, oh, it's a U-boat doing the same as we are to recharge their batteries. We were on one side of the moon, and UB-72, it turned out it was UB-72, was on the other side. The skipper signaled down action stations. We fired a torpedo, but missed. And with that, I immediately started taking off my sea boots. What are you doing that for? demanded the skipper. Well, I said, we missed. She's not going to miss us. But actually, she did miss us. Then we fired the next one and hit her. She sank, and it went down with all hands. End quote. But there were more instances. In the Mediterranean, an Italian submarine surprised the U-boat. They were so close that the Italian decided to ram the U-boat. Later, when divers went down to have a look-see on the boat, the divers were surprised to find the Italian sub on the seabed with the U-boat, her nose still stuck in the side of the German boat. The Italian submarine apparently hadn't been able to wriggle itself loose as the heavier U-boat went down, and so they both perished. And so there have been other instances, mostly of submarine servicing and catching an enemy sub off guard. The first submarine sunk by another submarine was actually when the British E-3 was sunk by U-boat U-27 in October of 1914. The E-3 had entered the bay of Borkum Island off the German northern coast, hoping to ambush German cruisers. Unfortunately for the E-3, the U-27 was also lurking nearby in the bay. The U-27 sneaked up on E-3 and caught it by surprise, sending two torpedoes into her. It was the first time ever that a submarine sank another submarine. The U-27 and her crew would not live to enjoy their fame for long, though. Less than a year later, the U-27 was fooled by British Q-ship HMS Barralong, thinking it was an American vessel as the Barralong was flying the American Stars and Stripes. Then, at the last moment, the Barralong hoisted the British White Ensign flag and unleashed its guns at close range. This was not long after the sinking of the Lusitania and the Arabic, discussed in part two of this episode about World War I, and the story is that the crew of the Barralong took revenge on the survivors of U-27. The Germans tried to use the incident as proof of British war crimes and tried to influence American public opinion, but the attempt was brushed off. Ah yes, war. 
war never changes. But I digress. So submarines could, of course, patrol large areas, largely unseen, quickly pop up to have a look and submerge again if no enemy was found, or try to sneak up an enemy sub. In 1917, the British Admiralty had the R-class submarine designed for one purpose only, to hunt down subs. Twelve were ordered. The design was ahead of its day. The class was focused on speed and rapid fire. To increase submerged speed, it had no outside ballast tanks, no deck gun, or anything it could adversely affect underwater speed. The hull looked like a spindle and was a precursor to the later American teardrop design. The R-Class had double the number of batteries and a relatively small diesel engine. The design traded surface speed for increased submerged speed. And it worked. The subs could move at a maximum submerged speed 14 knots, faster than any submarine or U-boat in operation. German U-boats, for instance, then seemed to be the best submarines around, could manage eight knots at best when submerged. British subs normally had two torpedo tubes, but the R-Class, officially the first hunter-killer submarine, depended on the ability to fire torpedoes in quick succession or in a salvo in order to increase the chance of hitting agile enemies, such as U-boats. Torpedoes were, after all, still pretty dumb things, to be fired in a preset straight line at a preset shallow depth. Also, and this was pretty revolutionary, the R-Class boats were the first to be fitted with hydrophones. Yes, the passive listening devices we talked about earlier in the earlier parts of this episode. Submarines would submerge and then lay still to listen around for any engine or propeller sounds it could pick up. Of course, these were still the relatively rudimentary hydrophones we talked about earlier, and so they weren't very effective. In the end, the R-Class boats came online fairly late in the war, starting in mid-1918, and unfortunately for the British they did not succeed in sinking any U-boats. No, next to the convoy system, depth charges were quickly becoming the real pain in the neck for German submarines. And since this, too, was one of the revolutionary inventions of World War I, let's expand a little on what these things are. To the uninitiated, there are still a few misconceptions about depth charges, one of them being that they are often thought of a lot like artillery shells. So... Bombs that produce shrapnel flying in all directions, with the shrapnel doing the killing. This is not how depth charges work. Instead of shrapnel, they use the laws of physics. More to the point, they use the conductive properties of water. Depth charges are essentially small oil drums filled with TNT. They explode and use the water as a conductor to expand the shockwave. Sound travels very far in the water, sounds are vibrations, and shockwaves are in essence very loud vibrations. The object of a depth charge is to damage the integrity of a submarine's hull, hoping that it will collapse under deep water pressure. Any object moved below water is subject to pressure. This is no different with submarines, metal constructs filled with air, after all. They are under constant strain, and as discussed in our earlier episodes about the first submarine designs, it's the sub's construction that keeps it from cracking up and imploding. There is a reason why submarines can only dive so deep. It's the water pressure. A submarine, therefore, is only as good as its design. In World War I, 75 meters was the absolute maximum death for some well-designed Tauchkoids or U-boats. So they could go very deep, much deeper than any British sub. The deeper the submarine is, the higher the pressure, and so the higher the strain on the hull and the bulkheads. Each separate part and joint supports the other part and joint. Damage to the hull's integrity can make it crack and implode. When under attack and zeroed in, the main recourse is to dive deeper. But this is a dangerous trade-off. Because the deeper a submarine goes, the higher the pressure, as we said. One depth charge that then explodes close enough can be all that's needed to terminally damage the hull's integrity, a 
as the water pressure will simply do the rest. Some 20 U-boats were sunk by depth charges, mainly because depth charges weren't widely available until quite late in the war. Chances are that U-boat losses would have been a lot higher if the depth charges had been introduced earlier. As said, the Germans went into 1918 building U-boats in pretty big numbers, but their effectiveness by now left much to be desired, if only because the British and the French were finally able to close down the waters between the British and French coasts, so the Channel. They used mainly impenetrable nets with mines, aircraft, and subchasers out of America, for instance, working out of southeastern British ports and French ports on the Channel, such as Bress. This meant that the U-boats working from the Belgian ports of Zeebrugge and Oostende now sailed north, going around the northern coast of Scotland and into the open sea. Of course, the North Sea is much wider and deeper than the Channel, and so the British were never quite able to cut off the waterway between Scotland and Norway. The German effort was still relentless, and so the British decided to try a different approach to stem the flow of U-boats coming from the Belgian coast. For some time, the British, most of whom were situated at the western end of the front lines in France, had been planning various offensives to take the Belgian coast and so end the German use of Zeebrugge and Oostende ports. These were connected to Bruges, then a major U-boat base. It was some 20 kilometers more inland and well protected, so impervious to aerial bombardment. The British had come up with plans for a small invasion just north of the two ports. This would then coincide with yet another offensive from land forces in the south. The two forces would then meet up and take the two ports out of the equation. But for a variety of reasons, this never got off the ground. So the Royal Navy devised a different plan. What do you do if you've got a bottle with water flowing out of it? Well, you put a cork in it. There was a constant flow of U-boats coming from the ports, and thus the Brits would put corks in them. So the plan was to make the ports of Zeebrugge and Oostende unusable. The proverbial corks consisted of old warships and cargo vessels loaded with concrete. They would sail them into the ports and scull them, blocking the ports and then keeping the Germans from removing the blocking ships by constant artillery barrage and aerial attacks. The first raid was made on Zeebrugge on April 22nd. Some 30 German submarines were mostly stationed in the inland harbor of Bruges. They would then use the channel to Zeebrugge and then move out into sea. The raid of April 22 was only half successful. The German port defenses were strong, losses were high. There was also part in it for British submarine C-3, by the way, which was filled to the rim with high explosives and commandeered by a skeleton crew. The submarine was to lodge itself in between the mole and the shore so as to cut off communications between the defending artillery turrets and troops on the mole and the shore. It succeeded. Captain Richard Sanford and his men rammed the sub between the mole and the shore at high speed, lit the fuses, and were picked up. The enormous explosion blew a large hole. But on the whole, and despite celebratory press brack home, the operation was actually, well, botched. But the Navy wouldn't let it rest, and so next day they tried again. The Germans were now, of course, expecting a second attempt, and so they brought in reinforcements. The second operation on the next day went a little better. Now two ships were lodged at the exit of the channel connecting Zeebrugge to the sea and one a little bit further behind. Aerial reconnaissance photos after the operation, however, clearly showed that there was still enough room for the sleek U-boats to pass through. The first attack on Oostende was made on April 30, but bad weather conditions hampered the operation. Ten days later, a second attempt was made. This time, the Germans were more prepared and their defenses stiffened. In all, the Oostende Channel was only half blocked by the HMS Vindictive, an old cruiser. 
What remained was a small propaganda war wrapped inside the larger war, with the British contending that their raids were largely successful, impeding the U-boats, while the Germans claimed that the attacks had only been a nuisance and that their operations were going according to plan. By now, we're talking mid-1918, any and all notions of naval chivalry turned out to be just myths. The Battle of the Atlantic had turned outright nasty. A particularly salient incident was the sinking of the Landovery Castle, a Canadian hospital ship. It had just shipped wounded Canadian soldiers back to Halifax on the Canadian coast, and on June 27 was some 200 kilometers west of the Irish coast. It had all its lights turned on and illuminated large red crosses on its sides, certifying that it was indeed a hospital ship. Under the Hague Convention we talked about earlier, enemy ships were allowed to stop vessels such as these and search them. German Navy rules and international law prohibited U-boats from attacking hospital ships, but the rule books didn't stop Helmut Patzig, commander of U-86, from sending torpedoes right into the ship's side. The Landovery Castle sank within 10 minutes, taking some 234 nurses, doctors, soldiers, and seamen with her. There were survivors, though, who had managed to get into lifeboats. Patzig then had his submarine overrun these boats and had his men machine-gun survivors in an effort to cover up his crime. One lifeboat managed to escape, allowing the story to be told. Once again, a U-boat caused international outcry. In August, the Canadian commander at the Battle of Amiens incorporated the Landovery Castle incident into a revenge message to his troops. After the war, Captain Patzig and his deputies were put on trial for war crimes in Germany, but Patzig escaped. In World War II, he resurfaced, his last name slightly changed, to once again work for the German Navy, this time training recruits. But it's not as if merchant vessels or ocean liners were setting ducks against U-boats. Well, of course, most of the time they were, but sometimes a daring captain would take his chance. Such as the captain of the enormous HMS Olympic, a sister ship of, yes, the Titanic. The U-103 of Captain Klaus Rucker had sighted the Olympic close by and came to the surface, intending to put two torpedoes into the ocean liner. For unknown reasons, the two stern torpedo tubes malfunctioned. The Olympic had sighted the submarine and went for her. Rucker ordered a crash dive and tried to steer away from the oncoming liner, but it was too late. The Olympic rammed her aft of the conning tower, after which the port side propeller careened through the submarine's hull, cracking open the pressure hull. The U-boat flooded quickly. The crew managed to blow the ballast tanks and some nine were able to escape, but then the sub quickly sank to the bottom of the sea. In the latest stage of the war, the combination of the successful convoy system, the interception of German radio signals, the depth charge, aircraft development, and the American mass production machine of ships and aircraft saw U-boat losses increase. The heyday of the U-boat was over. As the Allies grew stronger while the blockade of Germany remained in place, Germany came under increasing pressure. The armistice in the east with the new Bolshevik regime in Russia brought little solace. The generals in Berlin wanted the old Tsarist lands in the west carved up, which forced Germany to keep occupying forces in theater. Thus, although the general staff was able to send hundreds of thousands of soldiers to the western front for a final grand offensive, that soon faltered. The Allies started the famous 100 Days Offensive, which pushed the Germans back into Belgium and liberated the Belgian coast, thus finally relieving the Allies from the U-boat attacks from Zeebrugge and Oostende. Early September, the Austro-Hungarian Empire sought peace. One month later, the empire had fallen apart thanks to uprisings. On September 29th, the leading German general Ludendorff accepted that the war was unwinnable and advised to seek a peace settlement. 
On October 3rd, Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated and appointed a prince in his stead in an effort to appease the Allies and keep the Hohenzollerns on the throne. Germany was in chaos, but still at war. And so, on October 4, someone you will hear a lot about in our episodes about the interbellum and World War II had a very bad day in the Mediterranean. A fellow named Karl Dönitz had been the commander of U-68, a coastal submarine of the UB-3 type since July. Dönitz had spotted a convoy and wanted to attack, but while trying to sneak up, he experienced technical problems. His boat had become unstable, so much so that she keeled over forward and sank, fast. The submarine's nose hit the ground and it was standing upright, almost vertically, in the water. The men hanging onto pipes, beds, steering wheels and bulkheads, their legs dangling while battery acid started leaking from the large batteries aft. Through perseverance and sheer luck, Dunnitz's men managed to get the sub loose and relatively stable, and Dunnitz then blew the ballast tanks. When U-68 surfaced and Dennis popped the hatch, he found himself within the convoy he had just tried to attack. Immediately, destroyers and armed merchants fired at him. Unable to dive again due to the continuing malfunctions and bullets and grenades hitting the U-boat from all directions, Dunnitz surrendered his sub. He and his crew were taken prisoner and sent first to Malta, from where they were sent to a prisoners of war camp. It was there that Dunnitz expanded on a theory he had, the so-called Rudel Taktik. What, what some 20 years later became known as the Wolfpack tactics during World War II, when Dunitz would lead Hitler's U-boats into war. On October 21st, German Admiral Scheer sent his U-boat captains word that the unrestricted submarine campaign had ended and that they had to return to port. On October 24, German naval command desperately sought the final grand naval battle the theory books of naval domination wrote about, but which the Germans had always evaded. The service fleet was ordered out of port in a mad dash, including submarines, and to seek decisive battle with the Royal Navy. But many sailors had had enough. They didn't want to die in a blaze of glory while those who sought the glory were safe and sound in Kiel, Wilhelmshaven and Berlin. The sailors rose up. Many comrades joined them and the German Revolution was born. One of the last U-boat feats was the sinking of the British battleship HMS Britannia at a fateful location just off Cape Trafalgar on the southwestern coast of Spain. Yes, the location of Nelson's famous battle of Trafalgar. November 9 saw the last torpedo of the war fired at a warship, when UB-50, commanded by Hans Kukat, managed to slip through the destroyer screen of a battle group and sink the Britannia with one shot. And on November 11, 1918, at 11 o'clock in the morning, the Great War finally, finally came to an end. Most remaining U-boats were back in port, and the crews would live to undergo a major embarrassment. The world had gotten quite angry with the Germans through four years of the disastrous war, and U-boats had played a major role, just as the gas attacks and atrocities of marauding German soldiers had in Belgium, the north of France, and in Eastern Europe. The Versailles Peace Treaty dictated that the Germans surrender most of their fleet and U-boats as a war prize. U-boats were sent to Allied ports, where they were investigated thoroughly, stripped or ripped apart to learn Germany's submarine secrets. Many German technological advancements, of course, found their way to design bureaus all over the world, where they would be integrated into new types of submarines. In 1919, when U-boats were towed to and fro, one submarine of the U-151 class, that giant former merchant submarine type, saw its lines cut by a storm. The submarine washed up on an English beach. 
Newspapers had photographs made, and it is amazing to see this giant submarine on the grainy photos and people standing next to it, not unlike the Lilliputians meeting Gulliver. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It is really a sight to see the submarine so completely out of context, like a derelict alien spacecraft. So let's back up a bit and assess. Of 375 German U-boats built from 1914 to 1918, some 202 were lost. More than half, or 53%, most of them in 1917 and 1918. In all, the German U-boats sank more than 5,000 ships. So let's look at the other side for some perspective. The British entered the war with 77 submarines and built 68 throughout the four years. So, in sum, by 1918, the British had had, on paper, some 137 in 1918. They lost 54 submarines, either sunk in action, run aground to collisions, or, interestingly, to avoid capture by the Germans after the Russian surrender. The Brits had operated out of Tallinn, Estonia, on the Baltic coast for much of the war. But with the German-Russian armistice and Germans moving into the Baltics, the Brits relocated their submarines to present-day Helsinki. There, the submarines had gotten stuck in the ice, and the British were forced to blow up the submarines to keep them from falling into German hands. The British operations in the Baltic is enough material for a submarine podcast episodes, which maybe I'll get to later. The French started out with 55 submarines, of which about a third were practically obsolete. Most subs were lost in the Mediterranean. The French built 19 submarines through the war and lost 14. The French submarine history in World War I is actually quite an interesting one and also merits a separate episode, which also, maybe, I'll get to. There's one story, for instance, about a submarine named the Turquoise that ran aground. Its crew surrendered to the Turks, but when leaving the submarine, the captain forgot to burn his charts, documents. And in the captain's diary, the Turks apparently found an entry about meeting British submarine E-20, slated for a week later, including time and location. And sure enough... E-20 was ambushed by German U-boat UB-14 and sunk. Now, maybe after listening to these four parts about submarines in World War I, you may think that I've put quite a lot of focus on Germany and the U-boat. There's a reason for that. Every story needs a protagonist. In Germany, well, they didn't just rewrite the rules on how to use the submarine. They wrote the rule book, as there really wasn't one before. And they put the new rule book to devastating use putting fear into the hearts of the British, who had until then ruled the seas since, oh, I don't know, 1800. The U-boat and the nasty pirate-like tactics forced the British Empire and the United States to adjust their own strategies, to rewrite their own rule books. German technological innovation resulted in the design of 14 different classes of U-boats, each class better than the ones before. In 1914, the first blue water U-boat class, the U-9, had a range of close to 3,300 nautical miles with two bow torpedo shafts and two at the stern. It was able to carry six torpedoes and a crew of Max 25. The last blue water design, the U-93, became the workhorse of the long-range Kriegsmarine, with 22 units being built. It had a range of more than 9,000 nautical miles with four bow torpedo shafts and two stern. It could carry a crew of 39 men and 16 torpedoes. It was so ahead of its day that it served as the basis for the successful Type 9 submarine of World War II. Of course, there are also the U-cruisers and former merchant submarines which had improved hulls that could withstand more pressure and could thus dive deeper. 
And while the long-range U-boats are usually referred to when, whenever German submarines are discussed, it was actually the coastal submarine types that saw most boats per class built. The UB-3, for instance, of which the first hull was laid down already in 1916, saw no fewer than 86 units built until the end of the war. The U-boat went from a small force into a giant one, and one into which an entire empire put its hopes and fears. In all, World War I saw the true coming of age of the submarine. It saw the weapon come into its own. Where the submarine was at first seen as ancillary to the service fleet, Germany had shown the world that with enough effort it could potentially bring entire countries to their knees. The experiences of World War I laid the groundwork for submarine strategy as we know it today. In World War II, the United States and, again, Germany would use the submarine to try and force Japan and Great Britain, respectively, to the negotiating table. And they would largely follow the strategies laid down by Germany in World War I. As we shall see in the upcoming episodes about World War II, the United States pretty much succeeded in the strategy, while Germany basically went through the same arc as it did in World War I. First, start out slow and small, then reach a high water mark, then defeat as it came up against the combined British and American forces in the second battle for the Atlantic. Either way, valuable lessons were learned. World War I taught nations that submarines could sink dreadnoughts and battleships. The retired British Admiral Sir Percy Scott turned out to be right when he predicted in July of 1914, so one month before the war got going, that like the motor vehicle had driven the horse from the road, so the submarine would drive battleships from the sea. And so that's it for this four-part episode on World War I. Up next will be the Interbellum, which will see nations use German advancements to improve their submarines and lay down new types. Smaller nations, like the Netherlands, will improve on those technologies and discover that they too can punch above their weight. And in the Pacific, another nation on the rise will put the technologies to good use. Japan. Japan.